Hi, everyone. Eric here. Before we get to our discussion today with Henry Chierme from the Ministry of Finance in Ghana, I wanted to let you know there's a little bit of static on his line. We did our best to minimize it, but I did want to give you a heads up just because it is a little bit noticeable. Also, a quick reminder to sign up for a China Africa Project subscription that'll give you full access to all of the content we're producing every day on our website, plus the daily China Africa email newsletter. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast and we'll give you one month free just to try it out. See if you like it. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're, today we're going to pick up the conversation on that uh, Ghana Sinohydro bauxite for infrastructure deal that we covered a couple of weeks ago in a podcast, and since then there has been a lot of discussion about it. One of the things that our discussion brought up in when we were talking to uh, to the economist in Accra was the idea that this is a very risky deal, and it's interesting because all of the media coverage about this deal has been universally negative. Uh, the commentary on social media has been universally negative, and there hasn't really been the other side that's articulated. Clearly, people think in the government that this is a good deal, and there's obviously a lot of other people that think this is a good deal, but we have, we're not hearing from them. And so it's very interesting to see how the, the narrative of these deals really takes a life of their own. And in most cases, there's lots of distrust of the government. You've talked about this a lot, Kobus, in terms of how African leaders lack credibility with their own people, and that fuels this type of skepticism. So today we're going to pick up the conversation from the government's point of view to show a different side of this deal. Yeah, I think it's really important to do that because so far the deal has been characterized as a throwback kind of deal you know like the the idea of of in the first place resource-backed deals with china have become less common over the last while um and you know there's a narrative about um about africa exporting raw raw minerals um that slots maybe too neatly you know kind of onto this deal so so it's it's easy to see it kind of from um you know as, as as something from the past rather than as something driven by contemporary um, needs and priorities of, of the Ghanaian government. So it would be it will be very interesting to hear the other side. So for those of you who are not familiar with this deal, let me just quickly bring you up to speed. Ghana and Sino-Hydro. So a very important distinction here that this is not a deal between the Ghanaian government and the Chinese government officially. There's a slight distinction there because China, Sino-Hydro uh, is a state-owned enterprise. But this is a deal between Ghana and Sino-Hydro to exchange 5% of Ghana's bauxite reserves in exchange for $2 billion of infrastructure. So it's a cashless deal in many respects. That's why it's called uh, a throwback to the Angola model, where Angola did something very similar by exchanging oil for infrastructure. Uh, And already, they did not waste any time. Uh, The first tranche of $649 million has already been transferred from Beijing to Accra. 
and work on the infrastructure is underway. So we are we are so happy to be able to have the opportunity to bring you a different point of view than what we did in our last show and certainly counterintuitive to what's going on on the internet. Uh, Henry Chierme is the head of Bank Accounts, Reserves, and Interventions Unit in the Debt Management Division at the Ministry of Finance in Ghana. Uh, he is, uh, he's been at the Ministry of Finance for more than 14 years now, and he started all those years back as an assistant economics officer on the Spain and Denmark desk And last year, he received a master's degree in public policy from the very prestigious University of Tokyo. That by itself is a huge accomplishment. Kobus, you know very well from your own time studying in Japan that getting a graduate degree in Japan is not an easy thing to do. So, Henry, we are so thrilled to have you on the program today. Thank you very much. And I'm so excited to be here today to share my views yeah, and we're going to – I just want to make a very quick disclaimer before we start our conversation with Henry today. Although he works with the Ministry of Finance, uh, he is speaking today to us in his personal capacity. He is not speaking on behalf of the Ghanaian government or the Ministry of Finance, so nothing that he says today should be construed as any policy or anything official. What we are so happy about is the opportunity to get the public policy point of view, to get an insider's point of view from the government. And and this all came about in part because Henry and I had an exchange on LinkedIn when I posted our last show. Uh, Henry, in my headline, and I have to admit that I am part of that group who was uh, a little bit skeptical on the negative side. I described the deal as risky, and I described it for a number of different reasons, which we'll get into later on. You wrote back to me and you said, I'm not sure we can conclude for sure that natural resource for infrastructure is that risky. Go ahead and tell us why you don't think this is a risky deal. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, So financing of infrastructure has taken different models, and one of them in recent times has been leveraging um, natural resources, which, in my in my view, would have been exploited anyway, at some point in time, um, um, d- during the, um, the the phase of development of any country. So, and and there are quite um, lay out principles and, and 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 structures in exploiting natural resources. In this country, Ghana, before you can ever touch any of the natural resources, you first need a permit from the approving authorities, the Environmental Protection Authority, to be able to exploit. And often it is advertised and people with the relevant and the requisite knowledge discusses some of these things before you can ever touch any of the natural resources. So in my opinion, government's decision to leverage these natural resources to finance the much-needed infrastructure would necessarily go through the approval processes of ensuring that, indeed, our environment is not impacted that negative as has been you know spread across in social media and in, in, the, in the traditional media so I believe that we do have the structures in place to ensure that we do this in a sustainable manner that guarantees that Ghana has the infrastructure and the natural resource is also exploited in a sustainable way and that there's a win-win for everybody and that's why I don't think it is that risky. Um, you know, t- taking off on that point, um, could you unpack a little bit what some of those uh, mitigation measures are? Because one of the main points of criticism in the international coverage has been 
that it it's the the mining the bauxite mining potentially endangers water resources for a, a large group of of indigenous communities um, downstream. Um, so how how is the government and Sino Hydro going to work to try and avoid that situation? So so one thing that has to be clear is that the exploitation of the resources has nothing to do with Sino Hydro. The government would take the two billion in exchange for a bauxite that will be a refined aluminium that will be sent to Sino Hydro. The company to do this is a Ghanaian government formed company with uh, private sector participation. So there is nothing to do with Sino Hydro as far as the exploitation is concerned. So if I mean, the processes for acquiring a concession, the processes of exploiting, exploitation of natural resources, not normally will go through the approval process of securing a permit and also ensuring that the, the, the impact, especially on the indigenous community, is mitigated. And I'll give you a, a typical example. Some few years ago, we did a buidam that the Chinese government helped us finance. It was also in a very typical indigenous community. So there was a resettlement package for people who were living in that catchment area. The environmental impact assessment was conducted and the dam was constructed in such a way that the impacts on the indigenous and also on the environment were at minimal level. So we have had the experience before and I think the Ghana government would definitely ensure that the safety of the people who live in that area and also the resources that we are exploiting, in fact, there's value for money at the same time, we will ensure that there's sustainability ensured in this in this process. But you can understand why some people may be skeptical or concerned, given what we've seen with, and it's a very different industry, but in the gold mining sector, where pervasive illegal Chinese migrants and immigration and gold miners uh, have done, from what I understand, quite significant environmental damage. And yet there's been violation of permits, violation of immigration laws, and the inability or refusal or for whatever reason, the, the government hasn't cracked down on this and it's been going on for years. And I think that's fueled a little bit of the suspicion that if the government says, don't worry, it's going to be good, but we've seen in other instances where it isn't good. So do you understand kind of where people might be coming from? Yes. I, so I was one of the few who wrote on the illegal mining you can check it out. I wrote in um, Galamse in Ghana, the failure of the governance system. I do acknowledge that um, there are um, governance failure along the line. However, this process actually will not be in the hands of um, individuals. It is a government system, that will, uh, a government and a private sector that is going to form a company. We do have um, experiences of this nature in Ghana. The first one was the establishment of VACO. VACO was with the support of government and the government of the America, America in establishing an aluminum company in Ghana. That didn't lead to the influx of illegal aluminum mining in Ghana. The gold, the gold issue is a bit different because for a long time we've had um, private, we have had um, individuals participate in gold um, mining. In this country and therefore it became a conduit for 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 people to come in so the the processes that are going to be used in this bauxite deal is extent is, is different from what would would have that what would would have used 
um, and in, in the gold sector because the gold sector still has a lot of um, individuals, Ghanaians who are still participating alongside the multinational companies who are also participating in the sector. So it's a, it's a very complete, different argument. And you can check out my article when I wrote about Galamse in Ghana, the failure of um, governance system in, in that direction. Um, one of the, um, you know, criticisms of resource-backed deals um, is that when resource prices fluctuate, um, frequently governments find themselves in a position where they have to repay more um, to make up the amount than had they'd originally planned. Um, I've heard uh, rumors that that is a problem in Angola at the moment. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, um, how the Ghanaian government looks at that problem. Like, how, how are they going to make sure that they don't overpay if suddenly global aluminum prices are, you know, sink? So, so thank you for the question. Normally, in, in such deals, what happens is that you do have an escrow account where excesses beyond what you are required to pay in a year is saved in an escrow so that at a point when the fluctuations hit you on the downside, you can resort back to the, the reserve that you have built to pay down on the, on the, on the cost. Remember, this payment, this project... Would, would take us 12 years to repay um, the 2 billion. And therefore, you can build buffers as and when the prices are at the top. And then when the prices dip, then you can dip into your escrow account and, and, and use that money to service the debts that would be maturing at the point where payments are due. As part of this deal, only 5% of Ghana's bauxite reserves are subject to the $2 billion. What is being done with the other 95%? Is that being exploited or is this just, uh, they're starting with the 5% and we'll see what happens after that? So Ghana has long been exploiting these resources. That is why it is a bit strange when all of a sudden this becomes a big issue. We have had a bauxite company in this country for a long time, dating back to our first president's time. We've always exploited natural resources and then Boxer has been one of them that we have exploited. Perhaps it has not been on the scale that we are envisaging to do with a 5% exploitation. So perhaps that is what is inviting the interest of Ghanaians in this. But natural resources, including bauxite, for a long time, in the 1960s up to today, have always been exploited, and we continue to exploit them for the good of the, 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 of the country. Um, has there been moves from, from the government to, to um, establish more facilities for refining bauxite um, in Ghana? Um, is that part of, of the deal at all, or is that part of the, the government's wider thinking? Um, and are, is, is this bauxite going to be, be exported raw and then uh, refined in China? So, so the deal requires us to give China hydro um, a refined aluminium. So Ghana government, within the three years moratorium, is to establish a refinery company and, and begin the exploitation, refine it, and sell it to the Sino-Hydro guys after they have spent, based on whatever money they have spent on the infrastructure, we require them to put, to put in place. As we speak, the company has been established, the chief executive and the board has been inaugurated, and the government is working assiduously to ensure that the processes required in establishing that company is done. And, 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 and at the time of payment, we would have been able to have um, some money to be able to meet the, 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 the obligations of government. I guess the part that confuses me is why do you need a deal like this with Sino Hydro? Not you, but why does Ghana need a deal like this with Sino Hydro 
why can't Ghana simply ex- extract the bauxite, sell it out on the global market, and then whatever funds it gets from that, use that to pay for infrastructure? Why does it need to go through a barter deal like this and not just do what others do with oil and other commodities? Ghana government has been sp- sponsoring infrastructure through um, domestic revenue. It has also been sponsoring infrastructure through loans, including the international capital market um, participation and all forms of, including even grants. What we know is that the volumes of resources required to close the infrastructure gap that we do have is, is completely inadequate. And devising any means that would enable you to be on track in meeting your infrastructure needs, in my opinion, is a way to go. There was no way Ghana government could have been able to raise the two billion outside the traditional streams of revenue mobilization to be able to embark on this massive infrastructure that will open the economy of this country in such a way that the economic activities will, would, would, will increase more inclusion. It would also open way for more participation that would in itself propel grow, uh, greater growth of the economy. So the, the, the part, if government wanted to go into the market by selling the aluminium, fine. But you would need to build the infrastructure. And within that period of three, four years where you're putting your, your house in order, your infrastructure keeps deteriorating and, and, and you continue to have the cry of your people demanding you to put the infrastructure when indeed you don't have the resources to do that. So in my opinion, once you you have somebody who says, okay, I can give you that money whilst you, con- you put your house in order and then you repay me after I have put the infrastructure in place, I think it's a novelty and it's something that should, we, we all can embrace and ensure that indeed it inures to the benefit of everybody in this country. So you're, only the Chinese can offer that deal. They're the only ones who do that type of deal. So in this sense, this is very unique to the Chinese, right? Uh, I think the government is open to any discussion around innovation in financing. And, and if the Americans are ready, if Europeans are ready, why not? Ghana they government don't do has that, own. Though. No one, I mean, only the Chinese do this kind of deal, right? Yes, yes. As, as far as I know, um, apart from the, the, the VACO that was also done with Kaizai in the early 50s, um, in, in this same model, I don't know of any other thing in Ghana that has been done through this, apart from the Buidam that the Chinese did and this one that they are going to do. Ambassador uh, Wu Peng, the Chinese ambassador in Nairobi, he said something very interesting in an interview with Dickens Olewe from the BBC, where he said, Africans want action. And I thought that was a really interesting point that he's picking up here. And the Chinese ability to move fast, like what they're doing in Ghana for this deal, is a key competitive advantage. Now, some people will argue, though, that the Chinese are able to go faster because they're not doing the same type of due diligence with the same levels of transparency that the World Bank, the IMF, the United States, DFID, all the other international groups are doing. So is there some, I mean, 18 months, as Koba's pointed out, from the deal being first negotiated to shovels in the ground by international development standards is lightning fast. Uh, Are corners being cut on the environmental impact assessments and on some of the other negative types of of assessments that need to be done typically in terms of determining whether or not this is a worthwhile deal. No, no, no. So 
let me give you an, an, an instance. So Ghana government participates in the international capital market and within a period of six months is able to raise three billion for various infrastructure projects. Money is raised from the West. If the projects are done, I'm not sure anybody will say that there was anybody cutting corners to put those infrastructure in place. In the same way that if you are dealing with the Chinese, there's always a project prepared. There's always a project prepared to be able to use the funding from China to do. So these projects that are going to be done are roads. These are engineered roads. The designs have been done. The government has prioritized these roads. And there's no way we could cut corners um, and, 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 and fast-tracking such infrastructure. I agree that the, the level, the depth of um, due diligence with the traditional donors is, is, is pretty elaborate. And it is so because often um, I, 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 I think, in my opinion, they want to be extra, extra, extra um, satisfied that indeed the project would, would, would yield the benefits that they all want to have. But I can also assure that most of the major infrastructure that has been provided in this country has been through the Chinese or through emerging uh, development partners. And, and this infrastructure has withstand the test of time. We do have examples in this country. There are roads that have been built with support from Brazilian government. There has been infrastructure put in place with support of Turkish Exim Bank. There have been infrastructure put in place with the support of Chinese, um, various Chinese instruments. The Ghana Gas Project was financed under the Chinese facility. And it's one of the solid projects we do have in this country. I am not sure anybody can say that we cut corners in putting that infrastructure in place. Um, do you foresee this kind of deal also being a, a resource back deal being replicated again or more frequently in the future? Is, it, um, is this going to be a, a more standard way for Ghana to, to get more infrastructure? Um, and also, you know, will that be sustainable politically um, within Ghana? So, so I, I, I don't expect it to be the norm. Why? Because there's not been a consensus. And like um, you rightly said in your introductory remarks, uh, like Eric said in the introductory remarks, the, the, the discussion has not been on the benefits. The discussion has not been on how to mitigate the likely impact. Rather, it's outright condemnation. So before we can really... Um, um, instituted, we need to build the, the, the confidence and rally our people around the benefits of it and then have a consensus. But as it stands now, I am not sure of how we are going to institute it um, into the future. But I think, in my opinion, it is a beautiful way of, of, of providing infrastructure which is needed most. If you look at the gold sector, we've been exporting gold for years. You go to a Boise gold mine and you'll be shocked of the road infrastructure in the mine. You would have expected Oboise to be like Johannesburg or some other gold um, producing uh, cities around the world. And, and, and that tells you that most of the benefits from most of the natural resources we have exploited for years have gone to expatriates or has gone to foreigners who come in there with the capital and exploit them and then the benefits they repatriated back home. Um, there is a need for us to harness our resources for the good of our people. And, and, and that, for me, is a conviction that every Ghanaian should have, that 
Never should we allow people to just exploit our resources, take the benefits to their home country, whilst our own people who live in this in these communities suffer the consequence of it. Well, that's a nice way to end on a positive note. We're so grateful that you took the time for us uh, to speak with us and particularly to give the other side of the story. Again, this is a side of the story that is not being very well articulated, certainly not heard on social media and in the mainstream press. Uh, so we're just so grateful that you were able to join us. Henry Chierme is the head of Bank Accounts, Reserves, and Interventions Unit at the Treasury and Debt Management Division of the Ministry of Finance in Ghana. Once again, he is not speaking on behalf of the Ministry of Finance, so nothing here should be construed as policy or an official position from the government. It's his personal opinions, but it's really important for everybody to have a more holistic view of this very complicated deal that we have to say that after listening to you is more nuanced than a lot of the news coverage has made it out to be. So we're very glad that we were able to to, to share that with people. If people want to learn more about your point of view and the government's point of view uh, and this more positive stakeholder view on the deal, where where would you recommend they go? Since so much of the coverage is, has been negative, what would you recommend if people did want to find some some of that nuance? So I, I, thank you very much. I think there's a lot of information. You could speak to the Ministry of Finance. You could speak to the directorates, certain directorates within the office of the president. Because this is a new thing, it has not also been properly you know, situated within the government. But I think once the, the aluminium company is established, um, anybody can go walk into this company and have all the information that they, they, they require. The budget statements we have produced between 2008 up to now all have said something about um, the Sino-Hydro deal, and we can all read around them to get the information that we need. Well, thank you so much, Henry. Henry is on LinkedIn, and he comments on a lot of the posts that I share, uh, particularly about Ghana, so you can find him on LinkedIn. Are you on any other social media that people can find and follow you? Yes, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter using Henry Treme. Uh, you can you can find me there and then follow me. Cool. Well, I'll post links to all of that, and so and, and really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and I, I wish that... Ghanaians will begin to appreciate some of these novelties and, and all support government in ensuring that we bridge the infrastructure gap that we so badly need to propel us to a higher growth. Thank you. Kobus, there were a lot of areas in the discussion that we could have really gone deep on to to talk about in terms of the environmental impact, the debt you know, implications, the, as you said, the merits of whether or not you know, doing fixed price commodity sales is really a worthwhile way of going. But I thought it was more important to let him really state his case and and let the and let the interview breathe a little bit so he gets his case. And it was not a confrontational interview. And it's in some ways it reminds me a little bit of what we did when we spoke with Aubrey Ruby about the US position. And to really let the government sides, and Aubrey doesn't work for the government, she's at the Atlantic Council, but she was articulating U.S. government positions in many ways. And I just thought this was really a great opportunity to hear from the government. And, and again, most of times when you see government in the media, it's a very adversarial type of discussion, particularly in Africa. And so to let this go a little bit in a non-confrontational way, to me, was very interesting. So he could, he could make his case. People can choose to agree or disagree with what he says. And that's obviously their choice. Uh, but we need to make sure that we're hearing from some of these stakeholders, because honestly, we don't get the chance to hear from government, Chinese, U.S., African, 
we don't really get this opportunity very often. Yes, and frequently we, we also tend to um, harbor some kind of stereotypes about African governments frequently, you know, just assuming, oh, they're corrupt or, oh, they're incompetent or they, you know, kind of they, they just don't have capacity. Um, and not taking into account that a lot of the choices made by African governments, you know, are a direct response to certain constraints that they face in the international arena, you know, certain financing constraints, certain political constraints, and that, and the relationship between China and various African governments need to be seen in the context of those constraints, because a lot of, a lot of those choices only really make sense when you realize how long it would take, for example, to get, say, World Bank financing for a project like this, or how, uh, you know, what, what you would do in the, in, in the, the interim while you're waiting for that deal to go through, for example, like as, as he was saying, you know, that is three or four years where nothing is moving and and uh, existing um, infrastructure is slowly falling apart. So, for example, those kind of those kind of calculations that they make in in, in making these choices, I think, is really important to take into account. I want to pick up on that speed point that you brought up, which is eighteen months from the time it was signed to the time that the shovel goes in the ground. I wrote a piece for our newsletter on this that was then picked up by the Africa Report uh, magazine. And it was amazing to hear the response from Africans on social media, how much they valued the speed. And it's one of the lessons that I think that Westerners and Japanese stakeholders can take away from this, is that what, what Wu Peng said in Nairobi, that Africans want action. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, and that people were very excited that this is, this is actually happening. We're not talking about it, then three years from now, it's going to happen. And look at right now in, in Nairobi that the U.S. deal for the Nairobi to uh, Mombasa Expressway is bogged down. And they're talking about one, two years that this will come through. Same thing from the Jomo Kenyatta International Airport Railway uh, f- to the Central Business District that's done with the French, bogged down for lots of different reasons. But people have grown accustomed to the massive bureaucracy, all of the impact reports, all of the sustainability, all of the transparency. I'm not saying that all of that is bad. There's really important parts of that that are good. The point here is that speed is also important. Yes, and also the you know the the experience to take into account the experience that Africa has had with development partners, which is essentially waiting and waiting, and then frequently not not getting one's one's kind of primary wish fulfilled because one also has to deal with political realities in the donor country or changes in discourse within the development partner, you know, like this, we frequently see a shift, you know, in, in institutions like the World Bank from one, like one dominant idea of, of what should be financed and how it should be financed to a different one. And, and African countries sometimes find themselves, you know, uh, sitting you know, being affected by these kind of changes that they don't have any any control over. Um, and meanwhile, they're waiting anxiously, you know, kind of with facing lots of pressure from from local constituencies about why that bridge hasn't been built yet. Um, you know, so so it's 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 it makes African governments governments positions very very difficult sometimes. Well, the irony here is that it's not dissimilar at all to the situation we have in the United States where infrastructure simply can't be built because there are too many stakeholders involved. 
It's one of the problems that our infrastructure is falling apart because it has to go through community assessments, environmental assessments, uh, you know, whether the raw materials are being sourced from the right place. Again, you can't have steel from China. You can have to have steel from the U.S. You, you know, so many requirements that nothing gets done. So, I, I mean, I see a lot of parallels between the inability to get something done in the U.S. and the inability to get something done in Africa. If you came into the U.S. and said, I'm going to build you a bridge or a road in a year, people would celebrate. <laughs> Go, but I don't know. when. Oh, you were in New York a couple weeks yes. ago. Have you seen the streets in New York? Yes. <laughs> I mean, seriously, they're, it's pathetic. <laughs> and, and so, so this, this whole kind of dynamic of not being able to get anything done is, I, I think, a shared frustration. Again, Europeans and Chinese, they don't really understand that because infrastructure is something that those two places do very, very well. But certainly in the United States, there should be some sympathy for that. So... We were so happy to be able to to bring this discussion. It's interesting because this discussion came about through an exchange that happened on LinkedIn. We do these exchanges on Twitter. And so we're inviting people to have these conversations with us. And then I said, hey, do you want to come on the show? And he was like, yeah. And I was just like, wow, this is great to get somebody from inside the government to do that. Because honestly, getting government people to, to talk is, I don't know. I mean, maybe you'll get the infrastructure built faster. Uh, or... You know, Kobus, the problem we have is, you know, I, I was trying to get an interview with Wu Peng and then the list of requirements that they wanted me to do, and they really only want to talk to established media organizations. So independent media like us, we don't really stand a chance. <laughs> so if you're the BBC and Dickens Aloe, you get an interview with Wu Peng. If you're guys like us, you don't. So that's why we're especially happy to have the chance that Henry joined us. We hope that one day we'll get Chinese and other African government representatives as well to join us on the show. Uh, so, But this is the kind of thing that we're covering every single day in our newsletter. The community of our newsletter is growing. It's really exciting. And it's this kind of dynamic community of people who really love following China-Africa news every day. And this is, again, it's hardcore. Kobus, I mean... You know, uh, it, how long does it take you to read the newsletter that I'm putting out every day? Would you say? Um, well, you know, kind of, I'm a, I'm, I kind of speed read it. You know, kind of every morning. Um, <laughs> but how much would you say a normal reader is kind of? It doing would be, it? I think, about yeah, 20, 20 minutes. minutes I, I think. think, yeah, yeah. It's it's a, it's a full meal. It's like a, it's like you know, kind of like everything from you know, kind of cocktails right through to dessert. You know, kind of there's there's really. There's really every every single aspect is covered in detail. And the point is that you scan through it for what you're interested in, but there is really nobody else out there who is looking at the minute-to-minute kind of China-Africa relations issues. Uh, so, And that is something that's very different than what scholars are doing where they look at the big picture. Uh, even journalists are stepping back, and nobody in journalism is covering it every single day. So the Washington Post, the Financial Times, Le Monde, uh, even African newspapers and media outlets, Ghana Web – Daily Mail, they'll only kind of kind of go in and out of it. Whereas with us, it's every single day. And so if this is something of interest to you, go ahead, sign up. We'll give you a free month for you to try it out. If you don't like it, you can cancel before. You don't get charged until after the first month. So you can cancel at any time. Uh, we also have a student discount. If you are a student or a faculty, just use the promo code STUDENT and you'll get half off. Um, so you'll have to use your academic email in order to qualify for that. But we really want to extend that invitation to students, faculty, and of course, everybody else. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, Copus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, for Copus van Staten, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. 
head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Thank you.